This feels like a business class flight, doesn't it? I guess South Shores is the church that doesn't take Labor Day off, I guess. Well, I'm glad Pastor Ron read that scripture, that promise of Jesus this morning, because I believe we need to hear it with what I'm about to share with you. Let's talk about climate change. Kidnapping, sexual abuse, a border wall, abortion, neglect, police brutality, immigration policy, unemployment, social security, euthanasia, religious freedom, the First Amendment. Now, I don't share this list in order to just try to collectively raise the heart rate in the room. What I'm really trying to do is help us all catch on to the reason why those issues on that list is so volatile. Because every, every issue on that list causes a few heart rates to raise and eyebrows to furrow, and then some debate usually to follow. But the reason that's the case is because at the core of all of those issues are human beings. And if we're honest... Every human being at their core knows that human beings matter. People matter. With kidnapping, abuse, and neglect, we have to wrestle with the fact that weak people are being violated, right? And with a border wall and discussing immigration policy, we argue over the needs of people from other nations. With abortion and with euthanasia, we fight to defend the lives of small people and frail people. With Social Security, the debate goes to who pays for the needs of the elderly. And with the First Amendment, our country protects the rights of all human beings. After all, see if this sounds familiar to you. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. See, our founders seem to know what our country in large part has slowly forgotten, and that's that people matter because they're made in the image of God. Human beings are deeply loved by God. You individually matter to God. He sent his son to die for each one of us. And each person that comes within arm's reach of you as well. And that's why this series that we've been in about four weeks now is so critical, because we've examined as a church how to help encourage other people forward toward the God that loves them so much, the one who says you matter. If you love God today, you will love what God loves, and God loves his people. If you're loyal to God, you will dedicate yourself to reaching out to those around you. You'll do all of you can to help those other people grow towards God. You'll be empowered to serve God by serving others. And then you'll do everything you can do to see other people transformed by the work of Jesus. Now, in the closing book of the Bible, Revelation 7, 9, the author records this vision of a scene that's going to take place when Jesus returns, just like he promised he would. And as we read it, I want you to think about the people that are being described. Jesus is going to come back and the people he describes. Revelation 7, 9, after this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried aloud, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So did you catch who's in on this party? Did you note which demographics are represented? Because It's not necessarily just about people who go to church. 
See, when Jesus comes again, he's going to do so with authority, with power, and with dominance. And there's going to be certain people when Jesus returns that are going to be freaked out. They're going to be filled with terror. But here we read of a different group who, when Jesus returns, are going to be celebrating. And this group is going to represent every nation on earth, every tribe on earth, and people from every language on earth. Because every person matters to God. But what do they share in common? It's not language. It's not skin color. It's something else. Now, Pastor Ty has mentioned this before, that normally when people show up to an event wearing the exact same thing, it causes a little bit of awkwardness and uncomfortability. However, at this party, it's a bonus. Because what this group from every tribe, nation, and language has in common is in part their clothing. They're all wearing the same thing, white robes, which doesn't seem practical, but that's not the point. The point of these robes is that they're miraculous. No one could get one by themselves. No one on earth could afford one. No one in Hollywood could have one styled for them. They can only be given to you by Jesus himself. The prophet Isaiah gave us a little heads up on this when he wrote and recorded in Isaiah 1.18, come let us settle this says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will, they will be like wool. And the apostle John said the same thing in, in so many words when he reminded us how these robes were paid for in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this scene is, it's a big deal where Jesus is celebrated loudly for, 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 for providing salvation to everyone who's accepted his, his gracious offer. And he's praised because he's made a way possible for sin to be forgiven and then to be removed so that you can be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus to wear a robe white as snow. Jesus is making a way possible to be brought back into a relationship with God. And if that's you, if you're going to wear that robe on that day because you know Christ, you have a job. Every Christian has a job. Every Christian of every race, every age, both genders, every Christ follower has a job. So whether you're a pastor or a plumber, a senator or a student, it doesn't matter. What matters is if you've been forgiven by God in Christ, you have a job, which is to constantly be on the reach for other humans who still need what only Jesus can offer them because people matter. We have a God who reached out from heaven to rescue his creation. And this means if you've been rescued by God, you're now blessed with that same job to reach out and help rescue those who need rescuing. And this means people who don't know or people who aren't yet convinced that salvation is only found in Christ. But for many of us, this is really hard. It's scary. It's awkward. It's, we hope, better left to somebody more skilled, we think. And that leads many Christians to a place where they rarely, if ever, try to share the good news of Christ. They would never be found guilty of proselytizing. They'd never be accused of proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Well, I, about 10 years ago, I came across on YouTube uh, the famous magician, you know, Penn and Teller, the, the big guy of the group who actually talks, Penn Jillette, he had a run-in with a Christian after one of his shows in Las Vegas. And his comments about this were really startling, so I want to startle you this morning. Keep your heart rate up. So let's see what his comments were.
talking about this. Uh, I hope the show, and at the end of the show, uh, before we go out, we, uh, we talk to folks in you know, an occasional autograph. There was one guy waiting over in the side of the air, what I call the hovering position, after I was all about this guy, probably about my age. And he walked over to me and he said, uh, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I want to leave you for a compliment to you. Follow my use of language and um, complimentary about you know, honesty and stuff. And then he said, brought this for me. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. He said, I wrote in the front of it. And I wanted you to have this. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm saying I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me. And then he gave me this Bible. And I've always said, respect people who don't proselytize. I respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave you alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe, you know, a shadow of a doubt, that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. It's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man that gave me that book. That's all I want to say. It's not often you get rebuked by an atheist, but his question goes deep, does it? Gets right under the rib cage. How much do you have to hate someone to believe there's an everlasting life and not tell them? South Shores, if you love and follow Jesus, you are called to tell people about Jesus. You're called to proclaim the good news of the gospel to people who don't know or who don't yet follow Jesus. This means that's your job on Mondays, on your day off, when you're relaxing, when you're on vacation, when you're on a missions trip, when you're not on a missions trip, when you're really busy, when you're tired. We are called by God to give others the good news that's rescued us so that they can be rescued. We are on a mission with Jesus to reach out to others. And I'll admit, just like Penn did in his clip, that sharing the good news with others can be awkward. It can be challenging. Every part of growing in Christ is challenging too. But like childbirth and running a marathon, the challenge is usually worth the reward. But how do we do it? I want to spend some time looking at some practical tips from Scripture to help us move forward as we commit ourselves to helping others move towards Christ. So I've said that your job, if you follow Christ, is to follow and imitate Jesus. And what Jesus does a really good job at is making God known. So, therefore, making God known, proclaiming him, needs to be the job of every Christ follower, too. 
Let's examine two passages to give us a track to run on here. Colossians 1.27, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with the strength that works powerfully within me. And then we hear from Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These passages are critical because they remind us of that if you follow Christ, we have an individual responsibility to make Jesus known, to proclaim him. We don't often use that word proclaim anymore, but it's not that complicated. It's not really. Proclaiming Jesus is really about announcing his words. It's about broadcasting the hope found in him, about circulating to others the forgiveness he's given to you, about declaring his truth and his works, enunciating how he's changed you, forwarding to others the mercy he's shown to you, going in search of those who are without God, heralding his strength, inviting others to hear the evidence for the resurrection, to jump at every chance to share that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, to kindly and respectfully demonstrate God's work in your life, to lovingly show people and tell people how Jesus has brought you from death to life, mentioning to others the news that Jesus desires disciples from all nations. And if you do this, be aware, you're going to get some no's. You're going to feel like a door-to-door knife salesman. You're going to get a lot of no's from people. I want to just paint this picture for you. If you look at this little comic on the screen, it's going to explain pretty much how this is going to go for you 90% of the time. Ronnie, may I introduce you to my best friend Jesus? Nope. So just know That's probably going to happen most of the time. But that doesn't mean that you're a terrible person. It just means that you got rejected, or Jesus did. So don't feel bad. If someone says no, back off and pray for another opportunity. Regardless, this is still our job. Even if you feel unprepared, even if you don't feel strong in this area, it's still your job. It may sound scary, but in spite of that, you're still always on call for the sake of Christ. If there's a human Within arm's reach, you and I need to be ready because there isn't a human being you can interact with who doesn't need Jesus in some way. They just have different needs and they have different levels of knowledge. Some people just need to be told. Other people need to be reached out to consistently. And that's really the first arrow of the diagram we've been using reaching out to those around us, whoever we encounter in our daily path. And I understand this might terrify some of you, but maybe I could suggest a small project that could help you feel a little bit more confident. Imagine you're driving somewhere with a new friend. You've only had basic level, surface level chit chat, and you're driving to pick up another friend five minutes away, and the new friend asks you a scary question, so why are you a Christian? (gasps) You weren't ready to go deep that soon. Did you black out? Did you panic? Did the airbags deploy? (laughs) Could you answer with a sentient answer? 
So the project is to work on a single paragraph response that you can really quickly and clearly communicate to them why you follow Jesus. And your answer should go beyond, I was born in America. Your answer should go beyond, I was born in a Christian home, and should include some of the evidence you lean on that's led you to do something crazy to the modern mind to sell yourself to Christ. Work on it. Craft it. Get help on it from someone here at church, and then pray that God gives you an opportunity to tell your story and brace yourself because he'll answer with a yes. There was a student who graduated from our ministry a few years ago, and he had his answer figured out. And he used, God used that answer to help another student find Christ. They were on the same track team at a high school called Dana Hills. And uh, it was leading up to Christmas. They were just finishing up a track practice. And they were sitting on the curb on the inside of the track and talking about Christmas. And the guy who was a Christian decided to use Christmas as a leveraging point to explain Jesus to his friend. So he asked his friend, so do you know why we truly follow, do you know why we really celebrate Christmas? And his friend goes, hmm. No. And so he explained how God came as a man through Jesus in order to rescue people from their sins, and that's truly what we celebrate at Christmas. And he followed up with a whiz-bang of a question, um, do you know Jesus will forgive your sin too? Did you know that God sent his son to die in your place so you could be rescued from hell and spend eternity with him? And the story ends with a teenage boy sharing the good news of Jesus to his friend and his friend entering into a relationship with God. We're always on call, even at track practice. Some of us, in spite of my encouragement, still don't feel prepared. Others feel so overwhelmed about how weighty this is. We think, I can't, can't this be somebody else's job? After all, I can't make someone follow God. I can't answer all their questions. I can't do it as good as so-and-so. So I want to give you all a pass if you feel that way. I want to take the pressure off. My daughter calls this bursting your pressure bubble, okay? Here's why the pressure's off. Your job is not to make anyone a Christian. Your job is to be obedient obedient and faithful to the opportunities God gives you and allow God to handle the results. The Apostle Paul would agree with me. He said this to the Corinthian church. They had some issues he wanted to correct, and he said this, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field and God's building. You see, it's God's job ultimately. It's his action that causes anything to happen. But it is up to us to be constantly vigilant to see how we can invest in God's kingdom. It's going to take all kinds of work, by the way, all kinds of work. Listen to how crazy it gets. Uh, Paul, in writing, to the first, in writing to the Thessalonian church, he said this, We exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. That is all over the map, the kind of help they needed. Weak people, discouraged people, idle people, backbiting people. But that's the messy reality of life, isn't it? One minute we're encouraging, the next we're warning, the next we're proclaiming. We always have to be vigilant for how God wants to use us. Sometimes it's going to be a big way, leading someone to Christ. Sometimes it's going to be small. Our job is to always be ready for action. I think none of us wants to be like that lazy servant in Jesus' parable 
who took his opportunity to invest for his master and buried it. Investing financially is not something I'm an expert at by any means. Uh, I have piggy bank experience, though, as I'm sure you do. But in investing, I've learned there's all types of investments. In, in each, though, you have to contribute something and hope to get your money back and then some. So there's, I've learned short-term investments where the money you've put in comes back kind of quickly. There are long-term investments when your return doesn't come back for years, which is really painful as a child, right? And then there's something called charitable gifts where you don't get your money back at all in the form of cash, but tax, I don't even know how it works. But Christians are called to invest in a similar way, and sometimes you can expect quick results, but in other ways, you're going to invest for God in a way that doesn't take, it takes a long time, like that woman here at our church who prayed that her husband would come to know Christ for 20 years. That was a long-term investment. So you can take the pressure off. You don't have to demand an immediate return on the ways that you serve. All you can do is look around every day, look at those who are within your arm's reach, and ask, Lord, how can you use me to help make a disciple today? How can I be used to encourage a disciple, to comfort someone who's discouraged? I want to invest in you, Lord. One idea I like is called the rock in the shoe idea. Instead of approaching every person and thinking, how can, I, how can I lead this person from darkness to the cross on their knees in tears right now? I'm sure it's happened and we should maybe look for that, but that's often not how that's going to happen. But maybe we should ask this, how can I drop a tiny spiritual rock in the shoe of their lives today? Every one of us have had a rock in our shoe. And I think it's universal that when that happens, we try to ignore it at first because no one wants to take the time to sit down, exhale, try to reach your feet, stop what you're doing. And so you try to roll that rock to the other side and see if it doesn't bother you anymore. And after a couple hours or whatever of doing that, you come to this place where you can't ignore it anymore and you can't move on unless you address it. With every person that comes into your life, be asking the Lord, how can I drop a tiny pebble of spiritual truth or love or whatever God has for them into their lives, into their shoe, and let it roll around and let the Lord and the Holy Spirit poke at their foot with it, poke at their soul with it until they can't not deal with it. So this should encourage you. If you're strong enough to lift the pebble, you can start investing in the lives of those within arm's reach to help make and to grow disciples. Jesus pulled no punches. Making Jesus known will not always be easy. Not every atheist you meet will be as kind as Penn Gillette. Jesus promised that if you obey him in this area, you will at times have enemies. But as Penn said, Christians believe the evidence points to Jesus being right. Christians believe the evidence is too strong that, that a type of truck is coming and bearing down on people without Christ and so in spite of it not being easy, we press on to help other people be rescued. Sometimes people are mean. Sometimes they are harsh and impatient. And sometimes you have to live with those people. Am I right, siblings? Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to love those closest to you. And as kids, many of us had a thought growing up that God screwed up when he placed us in the family he did or placed you with the siblings you had. Are you sure this brother is supposed to be mine? 
And it doesn't stop when we get older. It just changes into, God, are you sure this boss is supposed to be my boss? Are you sure this professor is supposed to be mine? Because I'm sure this, pretty sure this is a mistake. Pastor Derek shared with me something G.K. Chesterton once said about this. He said, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. We have to love our neighbor because he's there. See, our neighbors are those people who are within arm's reach in our lives. They're our classmates, our workmates, those people whose daily cycle of life imitates ours. Every one of these people is a God-appointed opportunity for you to be ready to speak into their lives when God gives you the chance. You never know when that will be or who it will happen with, but I would encourage you with a soft heart and a prayerful habit, the Lord will do in your life what you never saw coming with those you'd never have invited on your own. Let me give you two examples of reaching out to those around you as we close. The first is from the Gospel of John, where he records Jesus handpicking one of the disciples named Philip. John 1.43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. How's that sales pitch? Two words. And assumed here is Philip saying yes to this call to quite literally follow Jesus, to become his disciple. And immediately, Philip begins reaching out to somebody close to him. Not even on the job a week, and he's doing this. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. I love how the Bible is so unfiltered because it's, it's honest. Philip becomes a disciple of Christ, turns around, goes find his old buddy Nate and says, bro, I think we found the Savior the Scriptures have talked about. And guess what? He's from Nazareth. And immediately he gets pushed back because the Bible's honest, just like you may one day. And Nate asks, what, can, what good can come out of Nazareth? It must have been their version of Hemet. Um, <laughs> Philip... <laughs> Philip doesn't get bogged down. Instead, he says, come see for yourself. Come look at the evidence. Come look, come look and see him yourself. Philip reached out within arm's length to his friend, and God changed his life. We got to do the same thing if we're disciples of Christ who look at others the way Jesus did, because people matter. The second example is uh, more famous from John chapter 4. And this is uh, the longest one-on-one conversation recorded in the Bible because Jesus is talking to a very unlikely character at an odd place. And I'm going to read to you from an article written uh, from Christianity Today, one of their staff articles, had a great way to sum up this scene in kind of a storytelling way. She writes this, It was high noon on a hot day. Jesus, tired from traveling, chose a sensible rest stop, Jacob's well, outside outside the town of Sychar while waiting for his disciples to go into town for food. When our unnamed woman appeared with a clay jar in hand, Jesus made a simple request, will you give me a drink? Uh Uh-oh, she writes. Number one, Jews weren't supposed to talk to Samaritans. Number two, men weren't supposed to talk to women without their husbands present. And number three, rabbis had no business speaking to shady ladies such as this one. Jesus was willing to toss out the rules, but our woman at the well wasn't. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus began, if you knew the gift of God, he began with a tantalizing invitation and a gift, an irresistible offering, especially the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. So instead of insisting she pour him a drink, 
the Lord offered her living water. Water from the ground was common, but living water? Now he had her attention. This polite but gutsy woman pointed out the obvious. Jesus, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Her natural curiosity prompted her to ask questions as seekers do today. Such questions are no cause for nervousness. Jesus knows how to handle doubt. To quench her spiritual thirst, the Lord first confessed the truth about plain water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But then Jesus made a bold promise. Whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. In one sentence, he shifted from everyday life to everlasting life. Was our girl ready for that leap of faith? Not quite. She wanted whatever he was offering, but only so she could avoid coming back to the well for water. If we're honest, we get this motivation too. Eager to satisfy our physical desires, we overlook our spiritual needs. Time for an intervention. Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. Not an odd request, since women couldn't talk alone with a man in a public place, but Jesus' request was more about uncovering truth than about following society's rules. When she confessed, I have no husband, Jesus affirmed her answer, then gently exposed her sin. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband. Five marriages didn't make her a sinner. Due to warfare, famine, disease, and injury, men in those days dropped like flies. <laughs> and a widow became either a beggar, a prostitute, or another man's wife. Each time, this Samaritan had chosen the best option. But sharing her bed with a sixth man who wasn't her husband, that was a problem. Did she fess up? No, she just changed the subject. She talked about worship, Jerusalem, the differences between Jews and Samaritans, and we get her evasion. Before I knew Jesus as my Savior, if someone steered the conversation down a spiritual path, I veered toward religion and away from relationship. It's too scary, too personal. Finally, the woman at the well did her best to shut Jesus down. When the Messiah comes, he will explain everything to us. How stunned she must have been at Jesus' revelation. I who speak to you am he. The next moment, the arrival of his followers confirmed his identity and gave the woman time to process the truth. The anointed one had come. Here's the kicker. Overjoyed, she left her water jar and went back to town to urge her neighbors, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? In any century, our response to the Lord is the same. We confront our true selves, experience God's grace, and share the good news. Confront our true selves, experience God's grace, and share the good news. So no matter where you're at in your journey with Christ, you can always encourage others up to that point. After all, they're within arm's reach. South Shores, my prayer for us is that like Jesus, we could help those around us move from everyday life to everlasting life. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, I pray we would be ready for when you come again. That when you come back, our church would be celebrating as its walls are spreading wider and wider with people who've been brought into its midst from death to life, from every day to everlasting. Holy Spirit, would you equip every believer here with a holy angst for those who don't yet know you and for those hurting around them? Would you help every believer 
even if they don't feel prepared or equipped or expert, help them to walk obediently into every opportunity you place before them. If they're strong enough to lift a pebble, Lord, I pray you'd remind them that you can use them to drop spiritual pebbles into the lives of other people for your sake and your name. Would you be at work in our church this morning in Jesus' name?